0: See such an audience, I, I, my first reaction is that Harry Kane can't be playing. <laughs> but, but looking at the, the size of this audience, it's just the normal size with, with Fast. It's just amazing. And it's a really great privilege to be able to talk about my book on British aviation uh, and its uh, understated period between the walks. And this audience, from my experience, has a passion and knowledge for aviation that humbles me, uh, as you've heard, as a land soldier. Um, uh, even though I've spent some nearly 10 years in the, in the aerospace library, despite the expert help, some, some of that's here tonight, um, there are still many deficiencies. Um, this, I, I am very passionate about the interwar period because I think that it's a much neglected one. And it's one that we need to tell for aviation. And that's, that's the author speaking, of course. But um, before going to the interwar period, I'd like to very quickly um, consider the effect of the First World War on it. I'm not going to talk of battles of the war and so on, but um, the, the effect on aviation. And I want to start really, then I want you to take you and think. That 1914, there are just 59 frail aircraft from the Royal Flying Corps lined up at Melbourne in France, and that was really the sum total of what we could put in the air. 59 frail aircraft, and um, you see you see the first one, uh, and of course that's that's a Farman. Um, you've actually got Templar and, uh, and Long Longmore with it, but. As I was saying to Paul here, it looks, it looks like a boat, it's very crude indeed. Um, and really, it's, it's one of, of many others. Um, that, that's much better, actually. Um, it's one of um, Farman's uh, Royal Air Force Factory BE-2, which is much more familiar to you, Blerio's, Renault's, and the hated BE-8 Bloater. I don't know whether that's, that's is any uh, familiar to you. But it had a terrible reputation on, on killing its pilots. Um, those planes were burdened with their crews and kit. And some didn't even make it in England to the to the assembly center. And many had terrible difficulty just getting across the channel, let alone being much more friendly but reconnaissance. So needless to say, um, really, we can only go forward from here. and. Um, Obviously, military aviation progressed rapidly and um, fighters became faster, more agile, potent. Um, Although I would say that by the end of the war, um, the full utility of of the fighter still hasn't been fully proven. I remind you that bombers also progressed from the hand-thrown flechettes at the beginning uh, to bomb loads measured in tons. The Germans, for their bombing campaign against the United Kingdom, used their terrifying but extraordinarily vulnerable Zeppelins. And you can see there that uh, Zeppelins were hated by uh, everybody in in Britain. Um, But they were extremely vulnerable and they were filled with hydrogen gas. Uh, And once we got um, our um, incendiary bullets, we literally fired the the Zeppelins out of the air. Far more effective were the the German Gotha heavy bombers uh, but they were powered by pretty temperamental Maybach engines. And um, really, the Germans ran out of numbers there. We, we, they started with small numbers, and and literally from crashes and other, other things, they, they were down to a handful. Uh, so they really didn't have the, the capacity uh, to seriously damage uh, a great city like London. And on the British side, um, really, we, we really shouldn't be too complacent either, because some um, we made little impression, even though it was Trenchard's special bombing force, um, during the raids on the German cities of Mannheim and Cologne. And we also suffered far more casualties than we expected. Um, at the end of the war, our bombers were joined by the huge Handley Page, the 1500s. Um, this picture doesn't really show the size of its wings, but it's really a massive plane. Uh, and the Vickers-Finney uh, long-range bombers, um, which here, I think, I, think, um, I think it's strong, heavy, um, clumsy, but the, the thing that strikes me about the film is, is its engine. It's the Rolls-Royce Eagle, uh, which is the most, I think, probably the best engine of World War I. Um, but these two were not used. They, didn't, they came at the very end of the war, and we were unable to use them. Uh, so really, at the opening of our story in 1919, air power was still not a war-winning weapon. Bombing hadn't been carried out on a large enough scale to make a decisive impact, although the alarm that the Germans brought uh, from their raids on London did lead uh, to the establishment uh, of the Royal Air Force. Yet, I'm sure that many saw that air power's potential was undeniable. And um, when you came to the last years of the war, and I can hardly believe that we're at 100 years uh, from uh, the Great War, because I've heard nothing about 1918. I can't understand it. I hear the blood, mud and blood of the song, uh, but we're winning this year. We're going. We're actually starting now uh, to win. And what, where, where is the press? I don't know. But um, what we do in the 4th of July, 1918, just just a week a week from now, a hundred years ago, uh, we had a brilliant Australian general called Mon. John Manash, And at Hamel, uh, he had almost the perfect battle. And he used aircraft to tanks in support of his infantry. And amazingly enough, all these objectives were gained in an incredible 93 minutes. Think of the Great, the, the great War and, the, and the, the, the time it took to take a hill or a few, few feet. Um, and Hamel was, was a copybook success. Uh, and you could say, here we are, we're, we're, you know, this is aviation showing what it can do. And apparently at Hamel, um, it, we, our planes not only blanked out uh, the, the um, engines of the tanks, which was the, which was the um, uh, objective, but they also hit collateral targets around the battlefield. So here we have air action coming into its own. Um, but uh, even after Hamel and Amiens, um, the war is over relatively quickly. And it's over, not because of our necessarily brilliant tactics, but because of German exhaustion and the realization that once America's there and and the force and the the young men that she's pouring in, uh, their defeat is certain. And um, the end comes somewhat unexpectedly in in November and before uh, the opposing air forces had really proven uh, their their utility. In any case, um, in November, uh, the dynamic mood was, was that such terrible bloodletting all those years. Um, let's, let's never let it happen again. Let's go back to that, that idyllic time before the war. And of course, you can't go back. The, the, the social changes are irreversible. Um, and um, we are in another world. But, but what about aviation? What about the feelings for aviation? Uh, how did it stand in the national consciousness? i say for one, it, it, it has been an important weapon, but not a war-winning weapon. Um, well, what do we call our aircraft? We call our aircraft bombers and fighters. Well, in the, just at the end of the war, the last thing that people wanted to do was to, was to think of aggressive names. They were looking for peace. They were looking for uh, the end of war. And uh, they symbolized aggression. And I think, uh, it, obviously, it was predictable Uh, that a powerful reaction should develop against the nation's Royal Air Force. Um, You might argue that it was was very, very large, and it was, because I think these figures uh, tell the story. By 1920, you had demobilized 47,000 officers and a quarter of a million airmen, Uh, and plans were being made to dispose of no less than 100,000 aircraft. Now, remember I said 59 aircraft at the beginning of the war, those frail aircraft, And here we're talking about disposing of 100,000 aircraft and 350,000 aero engines and vast quantities of spares as soon as possible. Um, It was a very, very difficult time for for aviation, for the industry, uh, because by 1922, there were virtually no no orders at all. Uh, When you disposed of all these, you flooded the market with the cheap, aeroplanes, which weren't very old by that time, they, they, were, they were just off the production lines, and there were no orders for the firms at all. Um, they tried to diversify. Westland made pianos and milk churns, and, and Gloucester used some for pig rearing and mushroom growing. Um, and just to add to their problems, uh, the government was uh, twisting their arms uh, for um, demanding excess uh, profits uh, on their wartime uh, receipts, and these these had been made while they were pushing for <coughs> expansion all the time. I mean, the expansion produced these huge number of airplanes, uh, but they had to pay up. Literally, they had no uh, no leeway, and the result was that you got a lot of uh, you got a lot of firms folding, you have got compulsory amalgamations, and even Tommy Sockwith, probably the shrewdest, the shrewdest man in the aircraft industry, uh, he paid off his creditors and emerged as Hawker. He started again with, with Hawker himself, and Sigris in a new company. Uh, so, the aircraft industry is suffering. Um, Hadley Page is not doing too badly because he, he really is organizing this disposal and um, very shrewdly uh, making a fair amount of money, uh, although he, he doesn't get any orders either, uh, but he's, he's a very shrewd and um, technically able man because he, he gets an income uh, from slots uh, in wings which every plane's got to have. Um, but still, he's, he's getting rid of his staff as soon as possible. Not only is the industry suffering, but you've got the serious questions raised by Lloyd George about the continuing existence of the air arm. Uh, and, of course, the other two services are, are waiting their opportunity to, to claw back uh, air uh, into their establishment. Um, the air estimates at this time are just a quarter of the navies and less than 20% of the armies. And it's not too much to say that without a strong political champion, the chances of the RAF's continued existence were almost hopeless. Um, so, enter one of the um, foremost characters uh, of the RAF, Hugh Trenchard, Chief of the Air Staff. Um, tall, the commanding presence booming voice, his, his nickname is Boom, short temper, rare obstinacy, and endless determination. Um, his early service record had been far from impressive. Um, he had the utmost difficulty in the army of passing the entrance examination uh, for a commission, and he eventually succeeded in his third attempt for the less demanding tests for the militia. Um, he came eighth from bottom of 169 successful candidates. So despite all these qualities that I'm talking about, um, really uh, Drenshard um, is not quite as everybody expects. He was commissioned into the Royal Scots Fusiliers and considered something of a loner, uh, but rapidly showed himself a good organiser. He has always shown himself an excellent organiser. At the outbreak of the War, he was offered the chance to raise an irregular company of cavalry and was made an, an acting Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, no longer, were, you know. No sooner was that ha- that did that happen than he was seriously wounded, leading a rash attack, uh, for which he got a distinguished service order. Uh, but um, took time to recover from his wounds, and um, by that time the war is over, and he's returned to his uh, regiment as a major, still as a major. And uh, what does he do? He quickly picks a quarrel with his commanding officer. So by 1912, some eight years later, Trenchard is still a major as he approaches his 40th birthday. And a friend advised him to have a go on a flying career. What can you lose? Um, well, the first thing he had to do was to fly, pass the flying course, as, as everybody uh, entering the uh, RAF. And they were granted three months leave, but they had to pay £75 out of their own pockets, which was returnable when they passed. And he went to Tommy, Tommy Sopwith at Brooklands and gained his flying certificate at the very last class, and apparently without over-impressing softly. But from now, um, things are very much more in his favour. Um, as one of the World Flying Corps' oldest officers, I mean before as an old officer, uh, an old major, he's not going to be considered very highly, but now coming into the World Flying Corps, he's an older officer, he's more senior, and he's sent to the Central Flying School at Upavon. and uh, although he's still uh, considered to be a suspect flyer, he soon made adjutant And then the school's assistant commandant. Um, Trenchard was was really um, unforgiving, because he required instant obedience over the student officers. And he exerted the strongest control, because he believed in the airplane's vast potential. You can't argue with somebody who, who's absolutely certain that the, the aircraft is going to, going to command the world, really. Um, And he then enjoys rapid promotion, incredibly rapid promotion, of becoming a major general in 1915. What a marvelous time to be a regular officer. Um, And then he becomes the head of the Royal Flying Corps in France. On his appointment, he's he's very shrewd, on his appointment, he was very lucky to get the services of the diplomat uh, Maurice Berry, who was appointed his private secretary. And as he reputedly said to Berry uh, when he first met him, I can't write what I mean, I can't say what I mean, but I expect you to know what I mean. Um, In France, Trenchard was pressing endlessly uh, for um, better planes because what he was looking for was battlefield supremacy. Now, I believe in some ways, I'm a little biased, uh, that he was really almost comparing that to fighting patrols for, for infantry officers. He wanted to dominate an area and he wanted to dominate the sky. It's, it's, of course, an admirable aim, but um, casualties were pretty high. Uh, the Germans were much more selective. Uh, Trenchard's aggression um, was obviously very valuable for his service uh, and um, costly for, for many young men. Um, at the end of the war, he set up the independent bombing force to attack German cities, and uh, the early raids of those were pretty disappointing, uh, and the casualties were much higher than than he'd expected. Um, so what does Trenchard do when confronted with this very difficult situation? I've given you a background of his, his approach to war. Um, really, he'll do anything. He agrees for savage cutbacks. Um, he sends virtually all his serviceable planes overseas, hiding them. And he uses, he uses his limited funds, and they are very limited, uh, to build up the uh, RAF's infrastructure. Um, he wants the highest levels of training uh, and he wants to develop the light blue identity and prepare, of course, for future, the future expansion which he, he believes will never become. And as he says, I've laid the foundations for a castle. If nobody builds anything bigger than a cottage on them, it will at least be a very good cottage. Um, at the same time, he repeatedly emphasized the RAF's importance for national security, um, maintaining that air power was essential for military success. Now, it hadn't been proven yet, um, but he would say it, and he would say it, and he'd say it again. Um, and he always worked on the assumption that uh, the Air Force was a truly offensive weapon. Um, offensive weapon because bombers, uh, in his mind, were capable of defending themselves, penetrating opposing air defenses, and attacking centers of production by being able to drop a greater weight of bombs on the enemy than he could drop on the United Kingdom. Now, this is a very optimistic uh, um, statement, really, when you think that bomb aiming was extraordinarily rudimentary, and that our number of bombers uh, was certainly not impressive. Um, He also came to the amazing conclusion that the moral belief in bombing stood to its material effect in a proportion of 20 to 1. Uh, I'm, I'm not at all sure where, you know, where that came from. I, I think it might have come from the fact of the early panic uh, in London from the, from the German bombing. But by such reasoning, uh, Trenchard uh, believed that fighters should be limited to short-range interceptors, and that's the other side of the logic. So my conclusion really with Trenchard, and I have great admiration for him, uh, and I'm not blind to his limitations either. But he indeed he saved the RAF, and I don't think anybody else could have was as obstinate, was as big-headed, was 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 as courageous. Um, I mean, he he would literally rush into Churchill's office and, and uh, without without any warning, and have a, a blazing round with him on something he believed. Um, but on the other hand, um, his successors had just another decade. Uh, to drive through crucial reforms and amend the um, naivety of French strategic doctrine, admittedly, you know, in a rapidly changing world. Well, moving from the RAF to civilian aircraft in the between the wars, of course, the same hostility didn't apply, but their utility wasn't really considered that seriously. And the British skies were genuinely empty with just a handful of aer- aerodromes. Even so, in 1919, the British air industry created a dedicated department of civil aviation. And remarkably, the first scheduled civilian aircraft service, at and which is Air Travel and Transport, which was owned by the entrepreneur George Holt Thomas, offered a daily service from Hounslow to La Poirier in France. And he used, because he had to use, converted military planes, including a De Havilland DH-4. Um, not a plane that I, I know. They carried just two passengers facing each other in a very cramped condition, so I like a stagecoach, I should think. Um, I mean, aircraft are still wooden frame, they're covered with fabric, their engines need frequent maintenance, and weather forecasting is still in its infancy. Um, on one occasion, to illustrate this, Captain Gordon Olley, in a converted Handley page um, 0400, was compelled to make 17 forced landings before reaching Paris. Um, <laughs> By which time it was so dark, he said, I could not find a proper aerodrome and had to finish up eventually in a football field. Um, I think you can imagine the, the movement of the passengers. <laughs> back there. They probably dined out on that story forever. But whereas we are struggling, um, elsewhere highly subsidized German and French airline services are, are, are commencing to make considerable strides, linking Weimar to Berlin and Paris to Brussels and London. Uh, in, in Britain, uh, the initial reaction from Winston Churchill, who was Secretary of State for War and Air, was that civil aviation must fly by itself. Um, as a result, by 1921, uh, the three fledgling airlines, A T Handley Page Transport, and the Instone airline, which had one aeroplane uh, called the City of London, they all suspended or closed down their services. Uh, we were, government is alarmed. Uh, Churchill amends his. Uh, his policy and um, subsidies are introduced. But flying is resumed, it's like giving rations to starving man, because 25% of the, of, the, of, the, of the income is used for insurance at that time. So who flies on your airlines just after the war? Well, I think they tended to be rich, certainly adventurous, and pretty few. Um, an idea, a Hanley Page airline uh, produced a diary uh, featuring London's social events, because it expected their passengers to be interested, uh, and the advertisements including free furs uh, and Cartier jewellery. Um, it also charged charged 10 pounds for a single fare to Paris and 18 Guineas return. Although I understand on the 11th of October 1919, uh, it broke it broke, um, a barrier by offering the first aircraft meals, uh, where, which were up to six sandwiches, fruit and chocolate, for three shillings. Well, in this in this atmosphere, for civil operations to succeed, uh, you do need uh, adequate and regular subsidies. And Sir so Sam Hoare, who took over from uh, Churchill, the Secretary of State for Air, recommended the establishment of a single British airline company uh, to develop ailments both in Europe and across the Empire, supported by a government subsidy for ten years, but run on entirely business lines. And this was the proudly named Imperial Airways, flying from this grass-covered uh, airfield in Croydon. Things, however, did not work out as well as as was expected uh, or hoped, because Hoare appointed as um, chairman uh, the irascible, fearsome Sir Eric Geddes. Uh, Geddes was famous for the Geddes Axe, uh, which he wielded uh, in the civil service uh, and reduced salaries by 10% across the board, and so on. He also was the Director General of Railways for the British Army in France during the war, and Chairman of the massive Dunlop Rubber Company. Uh, and um, he brought in the austere Major George Woods Humphrey from Hadley Page as his Managing Director. Well, Geddes knew nothing about aviation, and he believed, of, above all, in fiscal soundness and efficiency based on his enthusiasm for time and motion study. His airline, though, had to buy British. And at that time, the, the aircraft industry was in such a mess that they were nearly almost delivered late. Um, and so Imperial uh, grows at a far slower rate uh, than the Continental Airlines. They went for rapid growth fueled by large subsidies. Although, in fairness, of course, he had to sort out uh, the ramshackle aircraft that he inherited from those three originals. Uh, but by 1929, when Imperial carried its 100,000 passengers, and that's an achievement, it had 19 aircraft in regular service compared with Germany's 240 and the late coming United States, 250. In 1930, the Imperial was bringing in its Handley page Hannibal, which you can see there. And um, I, I think you probably all would register that it looks pretty heavy. In fact, it's over eight tons heavy some £20,000, and it's been described as stately, slow, and luxurious. It was luxurious. Um, it's almost like a railway carriage, right? get this. Um, There's a certain... And it is an airliner, you, know, you think of... It. But um, it had to be luxurious, because if the wind was against you with those wings, you were making very little way indeed. Um, and it was decidedly antiquated when compared with uh, uh, Junkers, uh, all-metal cantilever monoplane. Uh, which was flying with Lufthansa at the time. But the, the Hannibal was a dependable workhorse. And really, Imperium was looking beyond Hannibal. It was looking to uh, the Armstrong-Wickworth Ensign, which you know here is a, here is a model plate. Uh, metal skin, four engines. Um, but the, um, the Ensign didn't come into service until 1939. So it's terrifically late. Imperial certainly didn't lack like style, it, showed, it chauffeured its customers from, uh, from a transit lounge to, to aircraft. Um, but its chairman's influence was pretty malign. I mean, he went for a quick turnaround service, whereby within 30 minutes aircraft were returned to the apron ready for the next flight, rather than pushing for newer models. So at Getty's Geth- death in 1937, it's unsurprising that the airline comes under widespread criticism. <coughs> With Conservative MP and active pilot Perkins telling the House of Commons, "I believe nothing short of a public inquiry will shake the Air Ministry into a sense of their responsibilities and into a realization of the present position." And of course, the, the inquiry's report was critical. And um, surprisingly, uh, they appointed, and it wasn't his it wasn't his first choice, Sir John Reith, the legendary Director General of the BBC, uh, as the post chair of the Imperial Airways. Um, now, as you can imagine, with um, Wreath, it was thought of as a poison chalice in a way. And um, I'll just read the, his reactions when he, when he arrived. I was brought to the door of an old furniture depository behind Victoria Station. It was Imperial Airways. A plate on the wall said so. Inside were some counters, luggage on the floor, a few people standing about. A booking office, evidently. I inquired of a young man behind one of the counters where the head office was. He pointed to a dark and narrow staircase. Up there, he said, the managing director's office? Second floor, floor, he thought. Having ascended thither, I went along a passage also dark and narrow, between wooden partitions, peering at the doors and wondering which to try first. Here it was, a bit of paper with managing director written thereon. From broadcasting house to this, and the first decision demanded of me was an indication of what had happened to me otherwise. Would I approve the expenditure of £238 on passengers' lavatories at Croydon? <laughs> um, well, I think this, this is as much, you know, a, a um, commentary, I think, on Reith and, and his, um, uh, his supercritical uh, attitude and ambition as Imperial Airways. But really, Imperial Airways' uh, management uh, wasn't very prominent. Um, and Reith pushed, as soon as he could, to an amalgamation of Imperial uh, with the uniformed British Airways, which had come together uh, from all the small internal airlines in the country. And um, he was going for nationalization, because he'd done that with the BBC. Uh, and um, he was going to call it British Overseas Aircraft Corporation, BOEC, But it didn't become official until the 4th of August 1939, so nothing really happened in this period. Um, it couldn't. And in the war, all, all, all civil aviation um, was frozen, um, still flying, but any, any production was frozen. So, summarily, I think, um, this first decade after World War I sees relatively low regard for aviation in Britain. Um, the Air Force is engaged in a protracted fight for existence, and by 1932, it had fallen in first line units. Behind France, the Soviet Union, the U.S., and Italy, and was in no position to meet a major external threat, despite, despite um, obviously uh, its um, chief of staff's um, confidence. The Imperial Airlines, lines, the nation's civilian airline, had been left behind by the continental and American rivals. So yeah, it's a pretty dull, pretty dull story, but in the British way, thank goodness, you've got individual men and women. Whose enthusiasm for aviation is going to lead them to achieve astonishing results. And um, I'd really like to talk about the ex service flyers, um, who in 1919 had rare piloting and, and navigation skills, and they were determined to take advantage of advances in both engine and airframe technology to set long distance and endurance standards. The outstanding challenge at this time is to fly non stop across the Atlantic, for which back in 1913, Press Baron Northcliffe. North and offered a massive prize of 10,000 pounds. It had certainly attracted Samuel Coney. The classic journey across the Atlantic was from west to east, from Newfoundland to Ireland, across a minimum of 1,880 miles of hostile ocean and usually pretty bad weather. Um, four British Aero companies, Sockwith, Martinside, Handy Page and Vickers, sent airplanes uh, to Newfoundland um, and um, crews next service airmen for where to start the race, and the first set off was Sopwith's purpose-built single-engine plane called the Atlantic, piloted by uh, Harry Hawker, and um, with the renowned navigator Lieutenant Colonel Mackenzie Green. Well, it came down after five hours into the sea because of an overheated radiator, and uh, the crew were just rescued in time by a small Danish steamer, Mary. Uh, unfortunately, this steamer had no radio. And during six day journey to the Isle of Lewis, um, the two flyers were believed to have died. The King and Queen sent condolences to their families, and the Daily Mail uh, sent uh, their kin £10,000 each. Once um, they arrived, um, of course, there were crowds to meet them, and, and when they got down to Queen's Cross railway station, they were greeted by no less than 100,000 people. Second aircraft, Martin Sides Raymar, two seater biplane. Um, was next, Uh, but it crashed on takeoff from Newfoundland, and Hadley Page's massive B-1500 bomber met with serious problems, and these had still not been solved by the time the race had been completed. This leaves the final contestants, and they were the last contestants, the Vegas team of Captain John Alcock, a flying ace who, as Turkish prisoner of war, had long dreamed of flying the Atlantic, and Lieutenant Arthur Brown, who, after being shot down, suffered a serious leg injury Following which he spent two years as a prisoner of war uh, in, in, in uh, Turkey and then treatment in Switzerland, um, and was ruminating on, on a long-distance flight. Well, as it happened, Brown called in at Vickers uh, and, and met Olcock, and they jointly uh, went to the management and, and said that they wanted, they wanted to uh, take part in such a flight. Their plane was a Vimy, uh, powered by Rolls-Royce Eagle engines, <coughs> Um, and they cleared a makeshift runway along, along the rocky Newfoundland coast and proposed to take off uh, on the 13th of June, 1919. Uh, Alcock liked the 13th of June, he said the 13th was his lucky number. Uh, in the event, gusty winds and rain prevented their planned takeoff and a fault developed in one of their shock absorbers. It took most of the night to fix it and just as it was fixed, a gust of wind clatters the plane against a rope stay and breaks a petrol pipe. It seemed to them that you know, they were destined not to go. Uh, but following repair uh, and a more favorable weather report, they decided to make the attempt. At 1.45 PM on the 14th, as they sat side by side in their open cockpit, um, the wheelchops are removed. And Olcock calls out to his team, goodbye. See you all in London. Don't worry. It's Alcock in front and brown behind. (laughs) Um, um, At their um, makeshift airfield, the wind was blowing since 30 miles an hour, and with his throttles wide open, Alcock's plane, loaded with 870 gallons of fuel and 40 gallons of oil, gradually gathered speed along the rough terrain, until with less than 100 yards remaining, it clears at the unforgiving stone boundary dike and they neighbouring woods by a matter of inches. Well, they had to move inland to gain height before they set off, and they recrossed the coast to begin their journey. Uh, at the controls, Olcock has got both feet occupied all the time, and usually probably one hand as well. Um, and uh, Brown is sending wireless messages that aren't getting anywhere, but he's got the role of checking the temperature gauge, the oil pressure, petrol consumption, and also pumping petrol into the forward tanks as, as it's being exhausted. Um, in the event, the weather is worse than expected, and Brown had to rely on taking measurements by dead reckoning. And after two hours, a potential disaster occurred when an exhaust pipe split off one of the engines. And although definitely it continued to run smoothly. And they are flying, I emphasize, through this inhospitable Atlantic weather, despite the favorable weather forecast, <coughs> described as unscalable clouds, fog, rain, sleet, and snow at higher altitudes. When the, crowd cleared, the cloud cleared, Brown's measurements told told they were nearly halfway across. But after 11 hours, they had the most terrifying experience when they flew through the center of the storm and their angular plane went out of control, spiraling down to some 60 feet above the sea. Uh, their engines are still running, thank God, and they, they start to regain height and reset their course. At 8,000 feet, they enter another storm where ice threatens their engine intakes. And despite his galley leg, Brown has to repeatedly kneel on the edge of the fuselage in freezing 110 miles an hour slipstream to, to clear them. By 8 a.m. on the morning of Sunday, 15th June, their excitement rose as they began to make out two small islands, uh, which they reckon are off the Irish coast. And they make landfall in Derry Gim the That wasn't planned. It looked lovely, but beautifully, beautiful green. And the plane, of course, went in nose first and tail-high, tail um, but they made it, and they were in Colimara by the Marconi radio station. They covered 890 miles in 15 hours, 57 minutes, at an average speed of 118 miles an hour. On the first 21st of June, they were both knighted, and the next day, Winston Churchill presents them with Lord North Theatre check, saying, um, across this waste and obscurity, two human beings, hurtling through the air, piercing clouds and bubbles, <coughs> finding their unswerving path, in spite of every difficulty, to their exact objective across these hundreds of miles, arriving almost on scheduled time, and at every moment in this voyage, liable to destruction from a drop of water in the carburetor or a spill of oil on their plugs. They are the real victors. Well, in spite of Churchill's hyperbole, uh, the, and um, Brown's achievement can be better appreciated where despite a number of other attempts, it would be eight years before the Atlantic was crossed, uh, non-stop by an aircraft, and this time by the remarkable solo flyer Charles Lindbergh in his Spirit of St. Louis. I, I do have to remember, uh, remind you, though, that on the 2nd of July 1919, we do cross the Atlantic, but we cross it by Royal Naval Airship, the R-34, um, on a journey that takes no less than 108 hours. Um, Olcock, sadly, is not to celebrate his triumph for long six months later, on the 18th of December, he was killed flying another Vimy in a crash near Raw. Brown never flew after that, and although he married and had a son, his son was killed during World War II at Arnhem. He died four years later from sleeping pill overdose after suffering a nervous breakdown. Another notable trail journey across the empire was by Australian ex-servicemen in an air race from Britain to Australia, uh, with their prime minister, Billy Hughes, put up 10,000 pounds, put the same same as um, at Northcliffe. And it was won by the Smith brothers, highly decorated pilot, Captain Ross Smith, who got an MC in bar and a DFC in two bars, navigator Keith Macpherson Smith, and two sergeants, Jim Bennett and Roy Shears, who maintained the engines. Um, looking back just for a second at the, at the of the uh, Atlantic, um, it's very interesting that, that the pilot doesn't worry about wearing a uniform, Uh, And look at his pockets, he's got everything in his pockets. Um, Brown is much more uh, careful. Uh, But they've just arrived from that epic journey, so they they deserve to have their pockets full. The Smith brothers um, were were faced by seven other contestants, but they succeeded on a flight, now this is not crossing the Atlantic, this is a flight to Australia, 18,000 kilometers lasting 28 days, involving 135 hours, 55 minutes flying time, 55 landings, following flights varying from 20 to 730 miles. Um, their aeroplane is Vimy, uh, with the, dare I say, the Marverse Eagle engines. Um, I'm not going to go into much detail on, on the Smith brothers, but it was a logistical triumph, because all the crew had specific duties. Um, the pilot that made the administrative and social arrangements, the navigator carried out the refueling, um, and, um, also manhandling many separate cans of petrol. Uh, and um, the, other, the other two, of course, late every night uh, on, uh, when it landed on the engines. Um, the mechanics also, it just wasn't the engines. Uh, on one occasion, at Pisa, uh, the plane bogged down. And on takeoff, Bennett had to hold the tail down before making a running jump for the rear cockpit, where he was on a rope. So if he missed it, uh, uh, Cheers was able to pull him. Um, They only had about four or five hours sleep a night. uh, And um, they really had a pretty regular, hard, unvarying routine, which their captain uh, thought would keep them going under those conditions. Um, Smith himself was to die in an air crash in 1922, along with his his mechanic, Jim Pennant, who left a successful business to join his old captain. Uh, but uh, Keith Smith became a director of Qantas until his death in 1955, and Wally Shears lived on until 1968. Well, back to England, uh, where few people still haven't seen an aeroplane, even as a dot in the sky, and two outstanding men here are going to try and certainly make a difference. And the first one is pilot and pioneer designer Geoffrey De Havilland, and De Havilland's. Um, role is to build small, relatively low-powered civilian aircraft with one or two seats. In 1925, he markets the famous DH-60 Moth, um, plywood construction biplane with a 60 horsepower engine achieved by cutting it on one of the Renault's surplus wartime engines in half. It was marketed at just 599 pounds and uh, gave a pretty good impetus for the formation of flying clubs across both Britain and the Empire followed by other moths with larger engines, which enabled solo pilots uh, to follow um, long distance flights and, of course, to de- develop the interest in aviation. Uh, the second, uh, unquestionably the greatest publicist uh, at this time is Londoner, Alan Cobham. Um, in May 1918, uh, Cobham um, att- obtained a commission in the Royal Air Force and was made a flying instructor. On demobilization, he decided that he'd try and make a living by flying, and uh, he joined a three-man enterprise with a single aircraft and lost all his money. Um, He then went and joined de Havilland um, in their aerial photography department, and flew the uh, Minister of Civil Aviation, uh, Cecil Branker, to India and other long-distance flights. Um, He was knighted for those, but his greatest contributions were to come. For in Britain, uh, Colum institutes a municipal aerodrome campaign, and his aim is to establish aerodromes across the country. During May and October 1929, he visited 110 towns and cities. Uh, <coughs> in, in his, uh, and he took up uh, mayors and town clerks, for them to view their, their towns from the air, for possible aerodrome sites. And later, he gives flights to over 10,000 children and members of the public of some seven minutes' duration. Usually, apart from taking the town clerks up and so on, he would give 50 50, uh, flights a day, but working out seven minutes, that's six hours alone. Um, In 1932, he goes on to establish National Aviation Day. He travels all over the country and um, sets up makeshift airfields and gives shows. And if you were a spectator, you would see a fly pass of different planes, including a giant handling page, 10 seats of fairies, moths, avros, and even an alter gyro. And this was all for one and sixpence, seven and a half feet. And it was then followed by an air display uh, aero, acrobatics, inverted flying, bombing, racing around pylons, wing walking, crazy flying, parachute jumps, picking up a handkerchief from the grass with a spike at the plane's wingtip, and others. After the show, for a further five shillings, spectators could experience their first flight. You can appreciate the value of Cobham's efforts when four million people attended his air services, with 75% of the RAF's new recruits at the beginning of World War II, acknowledging they participated in them. Um, Cobham's contribution, I I think, is is utterly unrivaled. Later in the 20s and 30s, you've got other lone aviators. They are fine for themselves, of course, and um, among them was the Australian Bert Hinkler. Um, Hinkler, in February 1928, in a small Avro avion using nothing more than a torch, compass and a page torn from an atlas. Became the first to fly solo from England to Australia. Can you really imagine a tall, of page torn from the letters? Uh, I had enough trouble getting to Woking. Um, there were famous female flyers like the Irish Mary Lady Heath and Mary Bailey and New Zealand's Jean Madden. But much the best known was, was Amy Johnson from Yorkshire's East Friday. In 1930, she was the first woman to fly solo over the 11,000 mile journey from England to Australia in a second-hand gypsy moth, which she named Jason. One million people came to Rita. She was rarely out of the news for her husband's solo flyer, Jim Morrison, who was a brilliant flyer himself, although very fond of, fond of the dream. And he proposed to her after knowing her for just eight hours. I was ashamed to think that I had taken eight years to make the same, the same uh, Serious step. I was lucky enough to, to enjoy it a little longer than or Amy. Um, these flyers have have star qualities, and um, they are the, they are the early superstars, um, and they have a vulnerability, and, and, and people watch every movement of them. Um, Amy Johnson, I just forgive me, because I'm just talking in 1940. She joined the ATA, the Air Transport Auxiliary, um, to transport all kinds of Royal Air Force aircraft, and um, on the 5th of January 1941, she was flying a twin-engine Airspeed, Oxford to RAF Kidlington when she went off course in poor weather conditions and during freezing weather and heavy seas she crashed into the Thames Estuary. Uh, even worse, when her parachute entered the water, Lieutenant Commander Walter Fletcher, who commanded HMS Hazelmere, a balloon barrage vessel, entered the water in a vain rescue attempt, failed to fly and find her but died from hypothermia, uh, for which he was awarded a posthumous Albert Medal. Aliens never found, although two bags with her clothing and personal possessions, together with her Christmas presents from her sister's family, were recovered. <coughs> Official aviation activities could be expected to, to attract far less interest, because Trenchard, of course, is deliberately keeping these active squadrons and aging aircraft outside Britain. Um, I've just got a picture of the it is. One of the aircraft, which actually continued right through the interwar period, um, distinguished themselves in Iraq, uh, but um, all was a shortage of stairs and difficulties. Um, on our credit side, um, I think that where we get a tremendous boost uh, is from a, a unique private air competition. And this is the trophy instituted in 1913 by French aircraft enthusiast Jack Schneider for an international race by seaplanes over a triangular water course with laps ranging from 280 to 350 kilometers with aircraft setting off at intervals. It's really a timed process and uh, usually 15 minutes apart. And the winning country traditionally hosting the next race. Um, the Schneider Trophy provides a unique spur for aviation for by 1913 its competitors were flying seven times faster than in 1913, and the British Rolls-Royce engines producing 15 times more power than the Gnome engine widely used during World War I. With the traditional British love for a challenge, it was appropriate, I think, that we won the race five times more than any other. Um, although, of course, the Americans won it twice, very professionally with their service flyers. And they decided that they they didn't produce uh, new engines. uh, And they decided that they would go into their transport aircraft uh, with great results. Um, But following the French win during the competition's first year, the British won with Sockwith's little tabloid. And we enjoyed four post-war successes, the last two when our planes were engine by Rolls-Royce. Italy won in 1919, 1920, and 1921, and we've got an Italian plane, I think. Um, yes, thank you. Um, Italian styling, very streamlined. You might think little bulbs in front for this huge, powerful engine, of course. Uh, but compared with those planes that we had in 1914, there was a difference. Um, America in 1923, 1925, and we won in in 1914 in our tabloid, 1922, 1927, 1929, 1931, and we won the trophy outright. And the last four races were achieved by the Supermarine Company, whose chief designer, R.J. Mitchell, uh, had an intuitive understanding of aerodynamic problems and elegance of design. Although in the 1927 race, Mitchell used a 900-horsepower Napier Lion engine. Uh, I think the engine that's at Brooklyn's in in a magnificent car there. It was at the end of its development cycle and the more powerful engine was needed for the 1929 contest. Um, The Rolls-Royce Kestrel engine of 1925 was hardly an adequate replacement. Nor was the company's 1928 Buzzard, which developed no more than 825 horsepower. And the key event uh, for the, the new engine for the Schneider, uh, was, came about in 1928, when three of Rolls-Royce's leading designers, Rowledge, Hives, and Lovsey, traveled from Derby uh, to meet aging Henry Royce, who with his team was at West Wittering. In a well-known story, one bright October morning, they stood on the sand dunes at Wittering, discussing a new engine, where Royce used his walking stick to sketch out a rough outline. During the session, each man was asked his opinion. The sand was raked over and adjustments made. The agreed decision was for a modified Kestrel with 12 cylinders, whose power would be significantly increased by supercharging to a possible 1,500 horsepower. And the supercharging, of course, enabled the size to be kept down. Well, time was extraordinarily short, because the Air Ministry was not pledging its support until February 1929. But by August, uh, the, the engine had run for one hour, 20 minutes at no less than uh, 1,850 horsepower for a race deal on the first Saturday of September. Then Flying Officer Waghorn, special RAF high-speed flight, whose formation Trenchard only agreed to reluctantly because Trenchard believed that it was the wrong use of RAF manpower, um, won easily at 328 miles an hour. The, race, the last race of the Schneider Trophy for 1931 faced even greater opposition from both government and the RAF. Ramsey MacDonald's Killjoy Chancellor, I think I can say that without any (coughs) political (laughs) bias, Philip Snowden condemned what he saw as a pernicious rivalry. And it could never have happened except for a 100,000-pound donation from a larger-than-life chorus girl, Lady Lucy Houston. Um, Lucy was the ninth and beautiful child, Um, she's a little mature here, um, of a London warehouse on four occasions married her way into wealth and influence. Um, not all her decisions were as brilliant <laughs> as the one to support Schneider Trophy. Uh, one um, in um, when she was a suffragette supporter she bought 615 parrots in red, white and blue cages and she tried unsuccessfully to teach them to shout in unison. the oh, <laughs> Following Lucy's contribution, uh, Rolls-Royce had just nine months to develop the R engine, that eventually produced an amazing 2,530 horsepower uh, to win the race. Boothman flew at 340 miles an hour with his throttle uh, virtually half open, but um, Flight Lieutenant Stainforth broke the magic 400 mile per hour barrier with a speed of 407.5 miles an hour. More important still. Um, The rise of the dictators meant that once again, war was becoming a real possibility. And Ernest Hives at Rolls-Royce appreciated the need for a fighter plane engine to help give Britain high-quality air defense. And it was the Rolls-Royce Schneider engine that provided the basis for a 12-cylinder engine of about 1,000 horsepower. The company called it the PV Private Venture 12, and it was this that evolved into the legendary Merlin that powered virtually everything in World War II. Spitfires, Hurricanes, lancaster's Mosquitoes, and the American Mustangs that only became outstanding when equipped with it. With it. Its first, first version ran in October 1933. I have to say it's fortunate that Ernest Hives was far more positive about the dangers than many politicians, for in March of 1933, Stanley Baldwin was still talking of preserving peace by trading the RAS bombers in order to remove his fears of aerial bombing and German rearmament. However, in October, Hitler quit the disarmament conference at Geneva and withdrew from the League of Nations. It would now take individual nations uh, to check his aggression. I believe that this might be a good point to to have your capacious break um, before I talk about leading individuals in the headlong race of the RAF to meet the immense aerial challenges of 1940. Ladies and gentlemen, without time constraints, and the, uh, this is this is, sounds like an excuse, the, the residual knowledge among you and, and the details contained in my book, um, I'm not going to go into the rebalancing of services. It could take about three hours. I think. But I want to highlight the uh, massive contributions by some people that I think uh, have not been as fully appreciated as they might have been. And my first might be somewhat surprising is Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain. Um, Whatever your opinions about Chamberlain's beliefs in appeasement uh, and your reactions like Hitler's to his umbrella and somewhat defeat voice. Uh, in reality, he was a strong-minded, even dictatorial political figure. He wasn't a lovable character. Apparently, the only person that could get through to him was his sister. Uh, but uh, when faced with an immediate German invasion of the Ch- Sudetenland, land, Chamberlain believed that he could resolve the crisis through personally going to meet Hitler, man to man. His determination was pretty evident because he offered on the 13th of September, 1938, to meet Hitler the next day. And the only way he would get there, of course, so quickly, is by air. Um, and he's only had a short day trip previously. <coughs> Following their first meeting at Butchersgarten, Chamberlain had a second meeting with Fuhrer on the 22nd of September where he proposes an international commission to implement the transfer of territory to Germany. He's not really getting very far, of course. Uh, in the event of Hitler's refusing, uh, general mobilization of this country was scheduled for the 28th of September. And I don't have to tell you that it would have been a near-suicidal war in which defense coordinator, Sir Thomas Hinskip's secretary, <coughs> believed our air force would have been wiped out in three weeks and our pilots would have gone to certain death. Whether skip is being a little dramatic, it certainly wouldn't have been uh, on any much uh, even terms. And Chamberlain is rebuffed by Hitler, he's tried twice, and he offers to go to Germany again, where Hitler finally accepts further mediation. It's not a great mediation, for a smaller cessation of territory over a longer period. But Chamberlain succeeded in having him sign a joint communique whereby they undertook to continue efforts in removing sources of differences which, which Chamberlain naively hoped would lead to a general European settlement. Even so, it was Chamberlain's persistence that led Hitler to rate him an arch-capitalist bourgeois, I think he was proud of that, <laughs> who with his deceptive umbrella had taken for a ride. Hitler's urge for war could, of course, never be sought so easily, but Chamberlain's invention, I believe, bought his country almost a year's breathing space before on the 1st of September, 39, Hitler's armies attacked Poland. And it was during this interval that uh, precedence came to be given to the build-up of fighter command with planes of an advanced nature, in addition to the force of new heavy bombers scheduled from 1942 onwards. And during the time, aircraft production rose from 2,000 in 1936 to 8,000 in 39, thereby, thereby laying the basis for future success. For such reasons, I, I suggest we might look at Chamberlain in a somewhat different light. On going on, apart from the towering presence of Britain's wartime Prime Minister, which can never escape, I'd like to mention three others, because I think their roles were particularly significant. Um, the first is Air Marshal Wilfrid Freeman, who as Air Minister for Research and Development and New Aircraft Production played a crucial role, one that his biographer, Anthony Furs, believed involved one of the most awesome responsibilities ever given to a senior officer, of course, Furs would. Um, Freeman literally provided the RAF with the sinews they needed to fight the war. He had direct responsibility, for instance, for aircraft being made in all-metal construction, the acceptance and wide use of the Merlin engine, and the approval of a radar defense system. It was his decision-making that was proved so remarkably good when he favored the Spitfire, initiated the development of four-engine bombers, including the Lancaster, and championed the unorthodox De Havilland Mosquito against determined opposition. In the area of aircraft production, where the labor force increased from 60,000 in September 1938 to well over 180,000 by January 1939, he authorized the contracting out of at least 35% of the work and adopted the revolutionary concept of shadow factories, which were created to be implemented at the shortest notice. Ironically, Freeman would never have been able to excel in such areas had it not been for personal intervention of the Secretary of State for Air Lord Swinton, for Freeman had been ordered to retire at the age of 47 after commanding the RAF Staff College. This was despite his earlier profile as one of the first to be awarded an MC in France at the Battle of Noves-Chapelle in World War I, and excelling in a number of increasingly senior training appointments after the war as potential candidate for Chief of the Air Staff. The likely reason for uh, his compulsory uh, retirement uh, was that uh, his personal affairs, the breakup of his marriage, and remarriage to someone 22 years his junior, activities that were taken most seriously by the RAF and other services at this time. I think it's also only really fair to say that Wilfrid Freeman's contributions have in fact been become more generally recognized in recent years, so I'm not telling you anything new. My second choice is scientist Henry Tizard, and here I might be breaking slightly uh, more different ground. He headed a five-man subcommittee at the Air Ministry to develop a means of tracking incoming enemy bombers and their escorts through radio beams transmitted from the ground. Uh, under Tizard, exceptional driving, his five-man subcommittee worked at phenomenal speed from Tizard's flat in St. James's Court, London. And you'll get some idea of what I'm saying, phenomenal speed. By May 35, after the erection of a 70-foot mast, He and his team were able to track an aircraft at 17 miles distance, still too short to play a significant role. By July, this was extended to 40 miles, and effective lines of communication were opened with Fighter Command headquarters. Unbelievably, by early 1939, a chain of coastal transmitters and masts had been completed, with ranges of 100 miles and beyond, and RAF personnel trained in their use on the 7th April 1939, it was activated and continued in use throughout the war. While defeat of the IAF during the Battle of Britain was always possible, without the assistance of radar, I believe its success should, could not surely have not been gained. Um, why? Because with its facilities, the sky is no longer limitless, and so effective was its identification system that German attackers could be tracked accurately from the time they left their continental airfields until they arrived at their target. This gave the defenders the precious opportunity to delay their responses, and even more important, to direct them accurately, thereby conserving limited fuel and effectively increasing frontline strength by making multiple scrambles possible. It, it really brings the rapier into uh, it, rather than the blunderbuss, which is, it transforms uh, air war. And my final choice, Uh, is Air Marshal Hugh Dowding, who shouldered the awesome responsibilities of leading fighter command during the Battle of Britain. And Dowding was not an archetype RAF senior commander. Um, He was tall, um, undoubtedly remote and unsmiling, and something uh, might be said, an Old Testament figure. Uh, During his time at the Army Staff College, prior to World War I, he was given the nickname Stuffing. And when during 1915 he commanded the RAF's number 16 squadron in France, they revived their austere commander's earlier nickname. And it was at this time that he clashed with Trenchard uh, on a number of occasions um, on the equipment delivered to his uh, squadrons, which was wrong. And he was right, Trenchard was wrong, which Trenchard wouldn't forgive him. And he also asked Trenchard unforgivably that where in the case of suffering severe casualties, he wanted to replace them with reliefs from time to time. Trenchard's reaction was to brand him a dismal Jimmy and send him home uh, and never give him uh, another field command again, although he promoted him. Um, then proved a the most able organizer, uh, and uh, in 1930 he's appointed probably the right appointment they found for him, Air Member for Research and Development, an area in which he excelled. Uh, after he'd been um, um, really rusticated by a trenchard, um, he found wireless technology fascinating in World War I and rapidly set himself to gain as much knowledge as he could about new technological developments that will, might be needed in a future war. And these included, and they are, I, I think, an impressive list eight gun armament for fighters, radar defence system, operations rooms to process its information. He was directly responsible for fighters receiving bulletproof windscreens, more powerful radios, shortwave radios produced at Farnborough, um, armoured seats, constant speed air screws, self sealing fuel tanks, and an electronic device enabling them to be distinguished from enemy fighters. Dowding was utterly committed. He, he, he fearlessly clashed with Churchill when Churchill had just been appointed and really had his tail up, um, and when Churchill wanted to send. Uh, hurricanes to support the failing French administration. Uh, Dowdy said they couldn't go. Um, if they did, there'd be nothing left. Um, and the detachment, which I mentioned before, is reflected in his style of leadership. And when he left the the conduct of the battle to his group commanders, uh, and after he'd ordered them to concentrate on German bombers, rather than seeking more exciting contests with fighters. Because what he was trying to do was to to pres- preserve his forces for the climax of the battle. A decision, of course, which was to the of number 12 group commander, Trafford Lee Mallory, and his, and, and his uh, assistant Douglas Bader. Um, I believe that, that Dowding was ahead of the game because he realized that with radar, you can have tactics, as I've said, with the, radar, with, with the rapier and not the blunderbuss. You can select the, the enemy target. And I believe comparisons can be made between Dowardy and, it may may surprise you, the ever cool Duke of Wellington, who 125 years before, against all previous conduct, had his infantry lie down on the battlefield in squares before it made its decisive contribution. Finally, I would crave your indulgence for a personal reminiscence. It's not irrelevant. Over the years, including the time when I was writing Transforming the Skies, Barbara and I were accustomed to regularly driving to the far northwest of Scotland. On day one, we aimed to reach Inverness, well over 600 miles away. We set off at 6 o'clock in the morning, set ourselves to cross the Scottish border by midday and reach Inverness by 6 p.m. On the occasion in mind, it was on September 2nd, and we made good time. And we didn't stop at Carlisle and we didn't stop at Crembo and we carried on. And eventually, of course, we had to stop for fuel and lunch break, and we finally moved off the motorway at the small town of Moffitt in the Scottish borders, that some of you may know. As we drove into Moffitt, we noticed that from the municipal gardens that considerable activity. There were police in full dress uniform carrying brass instruments, British Legion veterans with their blazers and medals, air cadets and local worthies with chains and emblems of office. We parked opposite there and asked, what was going on? And an impressive lady, very impressive, looked deliberately at two aging, I think, may say that, certainly creased Sassanax, and said, I, you're not to know, it's Hugh Dowding's birthday. And we entered the gardens, and we found rows of seats laid out before a bronze monument uh, bearing Dowding's familiar features. And before proceedings began, we sat listening to a most forceful rendering from the police band, of wonderful men in their flying machines, and the Dambusters' march. When the music was over, a very smartly-dressed senior RAF officer, I begin to think that all senior RAF officers are smartly-dressed, reminded us about Dowding, about Moffitt being Dowding's birthplace and his noted achievements during the Battle of Britain. We then actually heard Dowding on the tannoy, <coughs> rasping but powerful address. There followed extensive wreath-laying by local officials, some of whom were self-consciously tiptoeing over over the the, um, uh, lovely uh, lovely, um, lush grass in high heels. One touching gesture was the head boy and head girl from the local academy who, hand in hand, laid a wreath on behalf of the town's youth, along with some very diminutive air cadets with their gnarled NCOs. With the wreaths in position, all fell silent, until in the distance came the unmistakable sound of the Merlin engine, and our small township, nestling among bare, lowering hills, was overflown twice by a hurricane and spitfire before they waggled their wings in farewell. Finally, at a sharp command, all stood for an ear shattering rendering of the national anthem. As we drove away we were struck by the remarkable coincidence that had surviving a diminutive and remote moment at the time of its birthday celebration, for one of my personal Aviation heroes. And I was struck by the scale and enthusiasm of an event uh, that I was told had been held annually since the war. As I thought back, compared with the beginning of the interwar period that I've been talking about, when military aviation had been marginalised and so sorely neglected, this was a fulsome recognition of Dowding in his young fire's part in the nation's survival 17, 78 years before. Even if the main sorties are taking place far away, over skies some 350 long miles to the south. Um, for me, it was also another reminder, I think, how in, in British fashion, uh, during the interwar years, despite the irresponsible locust-eating and, and crass decision-making, we deserve to get away with it yet again. Thank you.